Bibles to Acts chapter 9. I'd like to begin this morning with a little competition just to get your blood going. I'll buy lunch for the first person who can find the verse that says, cleanliness is next to godliness. Some of you aren't looking. Don't you like the Wendy's 99 cent special? Well, I'll save you some time. It's not in there. You say, well, I've heard people say that so often it must be in the Bible. Well, maybe the way your mother said it, it sounded like it had the authority of Scripture. But it's not in the Bible. Where did that originate from? Well, you might think that it came from the sorority of motherhood as they were trying to find ways to get their kids to make their beds and wash their hands. Uh, maybe there was a group called Mothers Against Sloppy Kids. But actually it had its roots among the Jews. And their concept of cleanliness was ceremonial. They became unclean by eating forbidden food, by touching a dead body, by stepping on a grave, by associating with a Gentile. And they became clean by a certain time of quarantine, by ceremonial washings, by ceremonial sacrifices. And so the Jew would say, yes, cleanliness is next to godliness. And Peter held tightly to that position. In fact, in chapter 10 and verse 14, he will say, I have never eaten anything unclean. Peter was convinced that cleanliness is next to godliness. But God was about to change his whole perspective. In fact, the change that takes place here in Peter is almost as dramatic as the change that took place in the life of Saul at the beginning of chapter 9. And to bring about that change in Peter, God does what he so often does in our lives. He brings along certain people. Look at chapter 9 and verse 33. And there he found a certain man. Verse 36. Now in Joppa, there was a certain disciple. Verse 43, And it came about that he stayed many days in Joppa with a certain tanner. Chapter 10, verse 1, Now there was a certain man at Caesarea. Have you ever wondered why God brings certain people into your lives? Sometimes those people that you wouldn't normally associate with. Well, obviously God wants you to minister to them, but often God also uses them to change you. And that's what we'll find He's doing in the life of Peter. And this morning I want to take a closer look at the certain people that God brought into Peter's life and see if we can discover why. First person is Aeneas in verses 32 to 35. Now it came about that as Peter was traveling through all those parts, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Now the pattern of the apostles prior to this had been to stay in Jerusalem. Back in chapter 8 and verse 1, when we're told that the church was scattered, we're specifically told that the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. Their pattern was that people apparently came to them in Jerusalem as they did in chapter 5 and verse 16. And when they did travel, as Peter and John did to Samaria in Acts 8.14, it says they immediately returned to Jerusalem. But now we see that Peter is on the move. He's going out to minister. And his travels take him to Lydda. 
Now, Lydda was about 25 miles west of Jerusalem. It's known in the Old Testament by the name Lod, which is the name associated with it today. It's the location of the international airport outside Tel Aviv. And when Peter arrived at this city, there were already believers there. Possibly they were believers who came from being scattered out of Jerusalem in chapter 8 and verse 1. More likely, they're there as a result of Philip's ministry. Chapter 8 and verse 40 tells us that Philip traveled from Azotus to Caesarea and he preached in all the cities along the way. Lydda would have been one of those cities. And so Peter comes there and finds there's already a church there. Verse 33, And there he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden, bedridden eight years for he was paralyzed. Now, Aeneas is simply called here a certain man. If you compare that with verse 36, which talks about a certain disciple, it may indicate to us that Aeneas was not a believer at this point in time. Other than that, we don't know a whole lot about him, except that we're told here that he was paralyzed for eight years. He was crippled, and he was helpless, and he laid in a bed all day long. He couldn't get up. Even the simplest things had to be done for him by someone else. And his prospect was that he wasn't going to get better. Verse 34, And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And immediately he arose. Peter's very first miracle in Acts chapter 3 had been the healing of a crippled man. Now he repeats that. And I want, to know, I want you to notice a couple things about this miracle. Number one, the healing was Christ-exalting. Peter leaves no doubt about who's doing the healing. He says, Jesus Christ heals you. In fact, Peter doesn't even mention his own name. He doesn't even use a personal pronoun. Why? Because he wants to exalt the Lord. He doesn't want Aeneas to go away thinking about Peter. He wants him to go away praising the Lord. A little later in chapter 10, in verse 25, Cornelius falls down and tries to worship Peter. And Peter says, get up, I'm just a man. This healing was Christ-exalting. Secondly, it was instantaneous. The New Testament doesn't know anything about progressive healings. doesn't know anything about someone who says they've been healed and they're gradually getting better. This says he was healed immediately. Now, I feel kind of bad about taking away some of your ammunition by telling you parents that uh, cleanliness is next to godliness is not in the Bible. And so I want to give you a little ammunition to replace that. Go home today and decoupage verse 34, where it says, Arise and make your bed. <laughs> you can hang that on the wall in the room. This was the downside of getting healed. Aeneas had to do something he hadn't done for eight years. Make his bed. Verse 35. And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Aeneas was a walking miracle. Just seeing him walk around caused people to realize that Jesus is alive. And they turned to him. And it doesn't just say some of the people. If you'll notice, it says all who saw him in Lydda 
and the surrounding plain of Sharon. Why did God bring this certain man into Peter's life? Let me give you several reasons. Number one, to meet Aeneas' need, he was healed. Secondly, to bring many to faith in Christ, because as we read here, a great revival broke out. But thirdly, to link Peter to the next individual God was going to use in his life. You see, because of the revival in Lydda, the church in Joppa heard that Peter was in the neighborhood and they invited him over where he will encounter a certain disciple. That disciple's name is Tabitha, and we find out about her in verses 36 to 42. Now in Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. Now, Joppa was about 10 miles further west on the Mediterranean Sea. It was the closest seaport to Jerusalem. It's the location today of Java, which is a suburb of Tel Aviv. And while Peter was at Lydda, Luke turns our attention to an event that took place in the city of Joppa. It involved a certain disciple named Tabitha. Now that's an Aramaic word, and so he gives us the Greek translation, which is Dorcas. Both names mean gazelle. And she was quite a lady. It says she was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity. Paul said in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Tabitha was not only walking in those good deeds, she was abounding in them. And when we get down to verse 39, we find out what those good deeds were. She was making tunics and garments. She was making clothes for the poor widows of that city. She was the New Testament example of a Proverbs 31 woman. Proverbs 31.20 says, She extends her hand to the poor, and she stretches out her hands to the needy. And Tabitha didn't just do this once in a while. It says she did this continually. Verse 37, And it came about at that time that she fell sick and died. And you can imagine how, that, how tragic that was for the church at Joppa. She was one of their most beloved members. She was one who was greatly needed. She was one who would be greatly missed. And so it goes on to say in verse 37, And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. The first, the first thing that they did when they prepared a body for burial was to wash it. But they don't continue with the burial process. Instead, it says they took her after they washed her and they put her body in an upper room. Now, that upper room would serve as a nice place for visitation and mourning, but it also shows us that they had something else in mind. Verse 38, And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, entreating him, Do not delay to come to us. Because of the healing of Aeneas in Lydda, the saints in Joppa knew that Peter was there. And so they sent for him. Now, why do they want Peter to come? Do they want him to preach the funeral? No. See, they've got much more in mind. And that's why they say, do not delay. You say, well, she's dead. What's the rush? 
I think in their minds, they are believing that God will raise her from the dead. Now, that's a big stretch. Because Peter has done a lot of miracles, but neither he nor the apostles have raised anybody from the dead. And so, here's a situation where they're, they're saying, well, Jesus raised people from the dead. And if He did so when He was ministering here on earth, then why can't He do so now when He's sitting on His throne? And so they say, Peter, come over here. We've got a dead woman. Verse 39, And Peter arose and went with them. I like that phrase. That tells us a couple things about Peter. Number one, Peter was a man of faith. Peter didn't say, I don't do dead people. Just barrier. Peter comes. Why? Because he too believes that God can raise the dead. And then secondly, not only is he a man of faith, I think this tells us that he was a servant. Peter was an apostle. He was one of the twelve leaders of the church. But who's telling who what to do here? These people say to him in verse 38, do not delay, come with us. And verse 39 says, he arose and came. You see, Peter responded to the needs of people. He would later write in 1 Peter chapter 5 about leadership, and he said, true leaders don't lord it over people. They respond as examples. They respond as shepherds. They are servant leaders. And that's what he's showing us here. Verse 39 goes on to say, And when he had come, they brought him into the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. Peter came into the upper room, and it was like show and tell. All these widows were there, they were weeping, and they were showing him all the fine things that Tabitha had made for them. Now you have to understand that these were not just gifts for friends. She made these for widows. In the Jewish society, the poorest people of all were widows because widows could not hold property. And widows could not get appropriate jobs. That's why 1 Timothy chapter 5 gives directives to the church that they have a responsibility to minister to their widows. And so here's Dorcas doing that. And when Peter arrives, these people who have benefited from this want Peter to know about it. Verse 40. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. You have to understand that Peter didn't have any experience in raising the dead. His primary experience with raising the dead was that he got to watch Jesus do it one time. In Mark chapter 5, when Jesus came to the house of Jairus, it says that he took Peter, James, and John inside. And then Peter watched as Jesus sent everybody else out. And as Jesus took the hand of Jairus' daughter and said, Talitha, come. Which means, little girl, arise. That's all Peter's got to go on. So Peter sends everybody out of the room and he says to her, Tabitha, come. Gazelle, arise. But he does one other thing, and that is he kneels down and prays. Now, Peter's not praying to impress anybody because there's nobody else in the room but him and a corpse. 
He's praying because he's got a God-sized problem. And he's taking it to the Lord. And this is the guy who earlier in Acts chapter 5 walked down the street and his shadow fell on people and they were healed. But you see, he knows that the power is not in him. And so he gets down on his knees and he asks God for the power to raise this woman to life. Five young college students once came to London and they wanted to hear Charles Haddon Spurgeon preach and so they came to the Metropolitan Tabernacle and they were quite a bit early and so the doors weren't open. And so while they were waiting on the steps, a man approached them and asked them if they'd like to see how the church is heated. Well, that wasn't really their reason for coming, but since they had time, they said, well, sure. And so he took them into the building, down a long flight of stairs, through a hallway. And at the end of the hallway, he opened a door into a large room filled with about 700 people on their knees praying. And their guide, who happened to be Spurgeon himself, said, that is how this church is heated. Peter understood that. He got down on his knees and he prayed. And then he said, Tabitha, arise. And verse 40 continues, And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord." Why did God bring this certain disciple into Peter's life? Several reasons. Number one, to meet the needs of the widows in Joppa. Tabitha didn't get raised for her own benefit. She would have enjoyed heaven much more. She came back to minister to those people in Joppa. Secondly, to bring others to faith in Christ. Verse 42 says, many believed because of this miracle. But let me suggest a third reason. And that is to set the stage for the lesson that God is about to teach Peter in chapter 10. He's going to teach him a lesson about what's clean and what's unclean. And I don't think it's an accident that on this occasion, Peter finds himself in a room with a dead body. Back in verse 40, it says, He turned to the body and said... Now, in all the Jewish training that that Peter had, he knew that a dead body was unclean and would make him unclean. What is God doing? He's setting the stage for this lesson. And then a fourth reason, he also brings him here so that he can introduce him to a certain tanner. And that's the next person we see. That's Simon in verse 43. And it came about that he stayed many days in Joppa with a certain tanner, Simon. Now, this is one of those verses that you read over and you probably can easily consider this just to be incidental information. But there's more here than first meets the eye. Jesus had taught the 12 disciples that when you're doing itinerant ministry, Luke chapter 9, verse 4, whoever asks you to stay in your house, you stay there. And you stay there till you leave that town. Peter knew that. Simon may have likely been one of those who were saved because of the miracle done to Tabitha. He wants to show his hospitality to Peter, and so he invites Peter to stay at his house. Chapter 10 and verse 6 tells us Simon's house was by the sea. So Peter says, yeah, I'll stay with you. He's on his way. He finds out it's by the sea. He says, great. You know, th this would be great. I, 
I, I love the sea. I might even get a chance to do some fishing. So they go on, they get a little closer, and they're right up to the edge of his house. And, and Peter says, what is that rancid smell? And Simon says, well, that's dead animals. Didn't I tell you I'm a tanner? What's a tanner? He's somebody who works with the hides of animals. And the rabbis considered this job to be one that was despised. In Leviticus 11.39, it says that anyone who touches the carcass of an, anim of, of an animal is unclean. Simon touched them all day long. So here's Peter in the house of a man who is unclean. Why did God bring along this certain person into Peter's life? Well, number one, he's starting to break down the walls of prejudice in the heart of Peter. This is a huge step for Peter away from legalism to stay these several days in the house of a tanner, the house of a man who was ceremonially unclean. And I think there's a second reason because this gives us the ideal setting for God to teach Peter the lesson he wants to teach him in Acts chapter 10. He's going to be taught that lesson on the rooftop of the tanner's house the unclean man, he's going to be taught about what's really clean and what's really unclean. And this is also a place where he leads him to a certain man. And that's Cornelius in chapter 10. And we're just going to look at the first eight verses this morning. We're just going to kind of get an introduction to this fellow Cornelius. Verse 1, Now there was a certain man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. Now Caesarea was also a seaport on the Mediterranean. It was about 30 miles north of Joppa. It was predominantly a Gentile city. In fact, it was the headquarters of the Roman governor of Judah and because of that, it had a Roman garrison. Now, Cornelius is simply referred to here as a certain man. But we learn several things about him in these first two verses. First of all, we learn his occupation. He was an officer in the Roman army. He was a centurion, which meant he was over a hundred men. And specifically, he was in the Italian cohort, or that word means battalion, which consisted of 600 men. So he was one of six officers in the Italian battalion. Secondly, we find out about his religious standing. He apparently had grown tired of the pagan myths and pagan ways. And he had sought answers in Judaism. He was what the Jews referred to as a God-fearer. He was not yet a full proselyte. He had not been circumcised. But he was learning about Judaism and learning about the God of Israel. And then thirdly, we see about his religious commitment. He was serious. It says he was a devout man, he feared God, he gave of his money, and he prayed to God continually. Now that's pretty impressive. Was Cornelius saved? No. That's what's going to happen to him in Acts chapter 10. In fact, if you look over to Acts chapter 11 and verse 13, Peter is repeating the words that Cornelius heard from the angel Chapter 11, verse 13, he said, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here, and he shall speak words to you by which you will be saved. So he's not yet a believer. 
Isn't it interesting how religious a person can be and how sincere a person can be and yet not be saved? That was true of Cornelius. Verse 3 goes on to say, About the ninth hour of the day he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come into him and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze upon him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? Now the ninth hour was 3 p.m. This was one of the customary times of prayer for the Jews. Later we'll find out in verse 30 that Cornelius was also praying. And while he was praying, an angel came into him and called his name. Now that doesn't happen every day. And so it says he was alarmed. And his response was, what is it, Lord? Verse 4. And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Does God hear the prayers of unbelievers? I've heard preachers say no. What does this verse say? It says that Cornelius, who was an unbeliever, his prayers came before God as a memorial. Why? Why did God hear his prayer? Well, I think there's a reason. I think it has to do with his attitude. Cornelius was not counting on his religious devotion to get him acceptance with God. He was not praying so that God would say, My, what a devout man! I want to welcome you into heaven. No, he was praying and asking for God to show him the way of salvation. That's evident because when the angel came and said, I want you to send for Peter who will tell you how to be saved, he didn't say, saved? Me saved? I don't need to get saved. No, he said, thank you, Lord. This is what I've been praying for. He got his prayers answered because Cornelius was a true seeker. He was responding to the light he had received, and as a result of that, God is about to give him more light. Verse 5, And now dispatch some men to Joppa, and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a certain tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. Now in all likelihood, Cornelius didn't even know who Peter was. Because the angel has to tell him he's a man named Simon, who goes by the name Peter. What's interesting to me here is that God sent an angel to direct Cornelius, but he used a man to preach the gospel to him. And that's universally true throughout the New Testament. There's only one verse where we find an angel preaching the gospel, and that's Revelation 14.6. Why? Because God has given that responsibility to us. It's the redeemed who have the privilege of proclaiming the message of redemption. And notice how specific God's instructions are to Cornelius. Send some men to Joppa, to Simon who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner. His house is by the sea. Have him come to you. Now why is God so specific? Why doesn't he just say, Simon Peter's in Joppa, you two get together? Well, if he had been that vague, I think Cornelius would have gone to Peter. We see, God gives him very specific directions. The reason he would have gone to Peter is because Cornelius knew that it was unlawful for Peter to come into his house. And we know he knew that because later in verse 28, when Peter does get there, he says, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. 
So Cornelius knew that it was unlawful for Peter to come into his house. So if God had not instructed him to have Peter come, he would have gone to try to stay away from any problems. But you see, God said, I want Peter to come because God wanted to create a problem. He wanted Peter to confront a problem because in the face of that problem, he was going to teach him this lesson. Verse 7, And when the angel who was speaking to him had departed, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were in constant attendance upon him. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. When the angel left, Cornelius did just what he said. He called two of his servants and a soldier. And what I like here is that he didn't bring them and, and give them a sealed scroll and say, give this to Simon Peter. It says here, he explained everything to his servants. Now that's interesting. They come in and he says, uh, an angel just appeared to me and told me to send you guys to Joppa to Simon Peter and have him come here. Now I imagine it was difficult for them to listen to that without rolling their eyes a little bit. You say, well, how do, how do you know he told them all that? Well, because when they get there in verse 22, they give that very information to Peter. He told them everything. What's that tell us about Cornelius? He was a bold witness for the Lord before he even got saved. And that explains why when Peter got there in verse 24, the house was full of people to listen to his message of salvation. Now, why did God have Cornelius send for Peter? You know, Acts chapter 8 and verse 40 tells us that Philip the evangelist was already in Caesarea. He was right across town. Why didn't God have him send for Philip, who was closer? Chapter 9 and verse, 40, or verse 30 tells us that Saul had just gone through Caesarea on his way home to Tarsus. Why didn't God use Saul, the apostle to the Gentiles? Why Peter? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. Number one, because Peter had been given this assignment by Jesus. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 19, Jesus said these words to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What do keys do? They open the door. You see, Peter had already been given this assignment. He's the one who went to the Jews in Acts chapter 2 and opened the door to the kingdom. And now he's the one who will go to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 and open the door of the kingdom to them. God had already given him this assignment, and so it was necessary for Peter to be the one who went. Secondly, I think it was necessary because Peter had an important lesson to learn. God was going to use this occasion to deal with the prejudice in Peter's heart. And next week we'll see how he brought that home to Peter. This morning, I want you to notice the way God used certain people to set the stage for that lesson. He healed a certain man in Lydda, which started a revival, which caused those in Joppa to send for him because a certain disciple had died, which caused him to end up in the house of a certain tanner, which was the place where God would send him to a certain Gentile. God is involved in all of that. You see, it would have been a huge step for Peter to go from Jerusalem 
to the house of a Gentile in Caesarea. God knew that. Because in Jerusalem, he had a lot of peer pressure. He was surrounded by a lot of other devout Jewish apostles and friends. In fact, we see that peer pressure in chapter 11 and verse 2. When Peter got back to Jerusalem, it says, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? See that peer pressure? How could you do that? God knew if he had come to Peter in Jerusalem and said, I want you to go to the house of a Gentile, it would have been real difficult. So what does God do? Using certain people, he brings him over to Joppa, where it's a lot easier step. And in the process, what does he do? He brings him into a room with a dead person who Peter considers unclean. He puts him in the house full of dead animals that Peter considers unclean. And next week, we'll see that he now puts him in the house of a Gentile that Peter considers unclean. Isn't it interesting how God sets the stage? And Peter's about to learn that the principle he's always lived by Cleanliness is next to godliness, ain't so.